Welcome to Kingston Reads Word to the Wise podcast series for HR and safety professionals. Welcome to this, our third instalment of our Word to the Wise series, reflecting on the key issues out of the Government's Jobs and Skills Summit on the 1st and 2nd of September this year. You've already heard from Alistair Boos and Stephen Amendola in our week one podcast, where they discuss industrial issues, things around bargaining, multi-employer bargaining, the simplification of the boot, and the rebalancing of the commission for greater intervention in the support of enterprise agreement making. They were followed by Shelley Williams and Liam Fraser in our second podcast, who traverse such topics as pay equity, rights of representation, respect at work, and possible new jurisdictions for the Fair Work Commission. My name is Michael Mead, and I'm a partner in the Sydney office of Kingston Reid. Joining me today is Lucy Shanahan, who's also a partner in our Sydney office. Hi, Lucy. Hey, Michael. Notwithstanding that we've explored already a range of truly interesting matters in our last two podcasts, there's still plenty more to discuss. Today, we'll spend some time talking about the matters from the Jobs and Skills Summit's outcomes paper that relate to the manner and terms under which workers are engaged. This includes matters such as casual employment, limitations on fixed-term contracts, pay secrecy clauses, and employee-like forms of work. There will also be a discussion about issues relating to the criminalisation of wage theft and enhancement of compliance and enforcement processes, including through the elevation of civil penalties. So Lucy, perhaps a good place as any to start is a discussion about casual employment. The summit's outcome paper makes the statement that the government is intending to maintain what it regards as its pre-election commitment to set an objective test in legislation for determining when a worker is casual. Now, I think for anyone paying attention, there's a statutory test already within the Fair Work Act at present which defines what a casual employee is. And that's in Section 15, capital A of the Fair Work Act, and it was introduced by the former government's Fair Work Amendment supporting Australia's Jobs and Economic Recovery Bill. So given the fact we've already got a definition, Lucy, what do we think this is all about? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, and the definition is only two years old. Uh, so it, it is quite interesting that the government thinks that it's necessary for the definition to be clarified. Frankly, I think it's relatively clear. If you look at the definition in the Fair Work Act, then you can see the elements are clearly set out there. So there has to be an offer of employment made by an employer to an individual on the basis that the employer is not making any firm advance commitment to continuing an indefinite work according to agreed pattern of work. And so the person has to, that offer has to be made, the person has to accept that offer, and if they do accept the offer and they are considered an employee, then they will be a casual employee. So clearly there is a clear intention at the commencement of the employment relationship that there will be no firm advance commitment to to work or, or a pattern of work. I don't think there's really any lack of clarity or confusion arising out of that definition. And, you know, it, people have definitely amended contracts of employment to ensure that it clearly reflects that definition and there hasn't, there's no really no question about that. But it's interesting that the government is suggesting that there does need to be a new statutory definition for casual employment um, and it's probably not so much a reflection that they think we need a definition because we've already got one, but rather that they don't like the definition that's currently in place. And it really places a really substantial emphasis upon the formulation or the formation of the, the casual contract and not the pattern of employment, which in the past is how you've really looked at determining whether or not a casual employee or an employee is a casual employee. Well, it's not entirely clear yet 
precisely what the government means when it says an objective test. But we think, you know, we, we've given it some thought and we think that probably what they want to do is really change the world back to the way it was before the work pack decision a couple of years ago. So it's it's really more about the the practice of the or the way that the work evolves and, and how the person works rather than the terms of the contract. And you're talking about winding back the clock to the pre High Court work pack and Rosado. Yeah circumstance. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. And there's a couple of reasons I think that the government is looking at that. Firstly, we know that there's a lot of information being peddled at the moment about the increase of casualisation of the workforce, how people don't like to be casual employees and how it doesn't really give people an opportunity for career development and things like that. But the truth is that casual employment is not on the increase. For the last three decades at least, the casualisation levels within the Australian workforce have remained pretty constant between 20 and 24%. So there's not this significant increase in the proportion of the working population in in terms of casual employees. Secondly, there's going to be a really big substantial additional cost if there is an amendment to the casual definition. And the federal government, when they intervened in the um, High Court appeal, estimated that the introduction of permanent employment entitlements to a regular and systematic casual employee would cost employers approximately $39 billion. And We're not talking large employers here, we're talking small to medium businesses because that's where we see the greatest proportion of of casual employment. So that's... $39 billion, Lucy, that's not just a rounding error to the, um, I guess, Australian economy bottom line. That's that's big numbers and (laughs) big numbers in the engine room of the Australian economy in small and medium businesses. That's, That's exactly right. So it's something that people should be keeping an eye on because you don't want to have to deal with that substantial cost within your business. The other thing that is really causes a bit of friction, I guess, in, in the discussion about casual employment and it is this idea of the of the ability for a person to convert from casual employees. So when the definition was inserted into the Fair Work Act, there was also the provision or the clarification that after a period of time, casual employees would have the option of converting to permanent employment. And when we speak to our clients who act in accordance with the terms of the, the Act, they make the, you know, they give the casuals the opportunity to convert they say that they're just not getting the take-up, that people actually like casual employment because it gives them the flexibility, it gives them the increased allowance, and they don't mind that they don't have you know, access to annual leave and sick leave and things like that. But that protection remains enshrined in the Fair Work Act. So if you are a casual employee and you don't want to be a casual employee, you do have an opportunity to, to convert. So there, there are a couple of things that really need to be considered when we're talking about what the change to the definition might be and and what the proposed solution or the impact of the proposed solution. Unfortunately, Michael, we don't have a lot of information at the moment about, one, what the definition would be amended to and, and how it would what that introduction might be like, but it's certainly something that we need to keep an eye on. Yeah, and it seems like it's a real battleground of two ideologies in terms of the government and the union movement having this strong view that casual employment is an inferior form of employment and shouldn't be permitted or shouldn't be permitted uh, to the levels that we've had traditionally in the Australian economy, I think, as you said, over the last three decades. And then you've obviously got business groups and employers generally saying, well, our lived experience is that our casual workforces enjoy the nature of casual employment. They haven't, and um, Lucy, you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but I don't even think post the introduction of those amendments you're talking about that permitted um, casual conversion as a kind of NES um, statutory right, 
you know, whilst there was um, various provisions that allowed for disputes to be agitated and for matters where employers were reasonably refusing, or unreasonably refusing rather, the determination of a, a conversion of a casual employee to permanency, there's obviously those mechanisms to go to the courts and seek to have those, I guess, issues determined. But I haven't seen a huge run on those cases. In fact, I can't recall seeing a decision at all where those provisions have been utilised. And that would seem at least anecdotally to say that either casual employees aren't agitating to be converted or if they are, the matters are being considered appropriately by employers and where there's an opportunity to convert, that's occurring. And uh, where there's not an opportunity for whatever reason, be it because of the need for business flexibility or you know, operational circumstances, then you know, the parties are coming to some kind of reasonable resolution themselves of those matters and not having to resort to the, to the courts. So it feels like it's a solution that's being offered by the government for a problem that doesn't, doesn't actually exist. seem to exist. That's right. I think we can't forget that there's a real role for casual employment in our economy as well. I mean, you think of any uni student or school student who gets a part-time job during school, they're, or they're, that, that, that's where casual employment is perfect. Or, you know, over Christmas, retail workers, you know, an increase in casual staff for a, a fixed period of time. So those factors have to be really carefully balanced by the government when they're looking at how to, how to make this change. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the other thing that causes me to be a little bit concerned, if you think about that reform, and we'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later as well, that reform then also in the context of some of the other things that have been identified in that outcomes paper, things around same job, same pay uh, obligations, and also limitations on things like rolling fixed-term contracts. There seems to be a real desire, at least from what's coming out of the job summit, for the government to wade into these waters where they're trying to create greater restrictions on the ability for employers to engage employees and workers in a way that um, suits their operational needs. Um, So we're dealing with a a far narrower potentially uh, framework in which businesses can operate if some of these proposals find their way into legislation. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, So I think that's really interesting. One of the other things that I thought was quite interesting from the paper is that I think there's another area in which the government seemingly is trying to wind back some of the outcomes delivered by the High Court in another area, and that's in relation to um, some rulings that were handed down earlier this year concerning independent contractors. Now, I think a few eyebrows have been raised by the statement in the outcomes document that an area for further work that the government's seeing is to, and I quote, amend relevant legislation to give workers the right to challenge unfair contractual terms. And I think, look, the reason why eyebrows have been raised is that the notion of challenging unfair contractual terms sets people, at least in part, back uh, in the New South Wales jurisdiction to consideration of the Section 106 unfair contracts regime that's in the New South Wales IR Act. Now, obviously, Lucy, I think we were both around uh, when that section of the Act had a lot of work to do in the pre-2006 era. And essentially, it was used as a jurisdiction, almost like a quasi-unfair dismissal jurisdiction, but for um, senior executives executives and managers. Jan Event was the first person who, you know, made a claim under Section 106, and it was in circumstances where you would never have someone of that seniority to... You know, no one ever thought that they had jurisdiction to challenge the terms and conditions of their employment or their termination of employment. That's right. That's exactly right. And and they were, they were proceedings that used to be brought, you know, from my recollection, by senior managers, senior executives 
who didn't much like the fact that you know, a business fell out of love with them or decided mm. to move them on. Mm. So then the circumstances of their termination were challenged on the basis of this unfair contracts jurisdiction. And it saw some really significant compensation payments being made by the New South Wales Commission in those proceedings. Now, I think it would be surprising if, if this government thought that you know, reintroducing a remedy like that was the area that they wanted to play in. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't seem to have a strong policy underpinning either from the ALP's core constituent being the union movement. And no one, I think, was particularly calling for that, the idea that you know, executives or managers in a kind of Section 106 unfair contracts context could be able to agitate for remedy. So, you know, I've had a think about it. I'd be interested in your views as well, Lucy. But I think my reflection is that what they might actually be talking about there is a, an attempt to reinvigorate, or rather invigorate, the unfair contracts provisions that sit in the Independent Contractors Act. Now, the Independent Contractors Act is, I think, an interesting piece of legislation. It's, it's wafer thin. Mm. Uh, it was introduced in 2006 and you know, promptly not really regarded by too many people as no. a relevant piece of legislation. It, it's more used as a, as a piece, like it's more used in, in correspondence to threaten, you know, legal action to try and, you know, encourage discussion to, to resolve issues rather than anything else. Yeah, you know, that's exactly right. Yeah. And then, you know, earlier this year we had the High Court's decision in ZG Operations and JAMSEC and also on the same day uh, in February, they handed down another decision, CFWMEU and personnel contracting. And both those decisions were much reported. We did uh, a couple of podcasts here at Kingston Reed in relation to them. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to them, I'd recommend them to you. They're really interesting discussions of those two decisions. But I think, you know, what was the important takeaway in the context of this discussion is that those decisions established a series of, of principles or, or looked at this idea of what constituted an independent contractor for the purposes of whether, in fact, uh, particular individuals who have engaged on, at least in the Jamset context, an extended period of time, a long period of time, could actually claim employment-like benefits or instead were truly separate and, and distinct businesses or undertakings and therefore um, solely independent contractors. Now, those cases were run essentially looking at that contractor-employee uh, dynamic by you know, considering you know, the multifactorial test, which was a very common and established test in terms of looking at these types of issues uh, previously. And ultimately, the court found uh, in the JAMSEC matter and, and personal contracting that you look at the express terms of the contract, and if there are a complete contract in place, then that is satisfactory in, for the purpose of determining um, the relationship. So in a similar vein to Rosado, now, this idea of post-contractual conduct establishing a variation to the arrangements wasn't held to be available in, in, in both of those circumstances. Now, what the court did say, though, and um, it was uh, lodged in the decision in, in, in one of the passing paragraphs, is that neither party agitated that there was some kind of statutory basis for set-asiding or varying the, the contractual arrangements. And I think when we looked at that back when we did our original podcast, our view was that what they were talking about was things like the Independent Contractors Act and those unfair contracts remedies. So I expect that what that part of the outcomes document from the Job Summit is actually more talking about is trying to get a bit of a reset on the independent contractor arrangement or creating a remedy for independent contractors that might have been engaged for an extended period of time and might have therefore not had the benefit of those employment-like conditions to essentially better agitate under you know, an unfair contracts provision in that legislation or a varied unfair contracts provision, that they should have some of those employment-like conditions established in or, or set within their 
commercial contracts with a business. Which, which is interesting, isn't it? Because often there's an independent contractor arrangement because it suits not just the employer, for want of a better word, but also the contracting party, you know, the individual who's providing the services. There's, that is their preference for the basis on which they're engaged. And that preference might be for a range of different reasons. And there's certainly the opportunity for terms and conditions to be negotiated to some extent, generally, in a, in a contractual negotiation. But it's you know, it, it doesn't seem that this is allowing parties who are actually the parties to the contractual arrangement to, to look behind what is the basis of that. Certainly there might be situations where it occurs in an unfair way, but often that's the preference of the parties to the contract, you know, that, that structure. So it's, it's, it's sort of why, you know, yes, there are some things that are broken, but at the moment we seem to have a pretty good fix thanks to the High Court, which, you know, is you query why it has to be varied too much. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think it, to my mind it also picks up on what seems to be a bit of a theme um, through the outcomes paper where the government is almost, I won't say um, seeking to indicate that it knows best, but, you know, it's, it's really starting to, it seems, thematically try to intrude on relationships that are set either between employer and employee or between business to business yeah. in that independent contractor space. Another area where I think it would seem that that is part of what is uh, foreshadowed is this idea of same job, same pay, yep. and also limitation on the use of rolling fixed-term contracts. Now, I think they sound good as slogans. You know, who could quibble with the idea of same job, same pay when you say it, you know, yep. um, emphatically and with with conviction. But... How it might play out in practice, I think, is really interesting. And I think there are a number of practical challenges, not least of which how you determine what kind of pay and conditions are going to be preserved that might you know, need to be actively considered um, as part of this you know, uh, foreshadowed legislative development. Yeah, and, and this is also something that has been dealt with between employers and employees for an extended period of time. You know, there's you look at negotiations for enterprise agreements and you often see that a claim will a claim that is made will be that any outsource if if a function is outsourced that those people to whom it's outsourced have to receive the same terms and conditions as are contained in the enterprise agreement and and employers and employees and and the union representatives the bargaining agents have the opportunity to resolve that claim for the in accordance with the needs of the business you know so it it actually the business is allowed to come to an arrangement that enables it to manage its its you know terms and conditions in the way that it sees fit. So this is not this is not something that's new. Um, it's not something that hasn't been dealt with quite effectively by the parties to the employment relationship and, and that includes unions frankly. So it's interesting to see that it is that it is such a, a, a big thing now. And I get it, you know, you know, saying, well, we've we've seen examples like the Qantas example where, you know, all of the baggage handling was outsourced and and so I, I can see where this has come from but it seems a very big response to an issue that relates to one or the actions of one employer arguably a very big employer but you know it, it, this is something that is actually has been dealt with quite successfully at the employment level at, at the employer employee level and you sort of think the flow-on effect like if if I'm going to outsource to a labor hire company then potentially there is already an enterprise agreement in place between the labor hire employer and, and its employees you know, so if I'm outsourcing and I say, well, sorry, but you have to accept these high rates of pay, what happens to their terms and conditions or any additional benefits that may be provided as a consequence of that third party, you know, employment relationship is, 
what protections are available to ensure that those employees, they might get a higher rate of pay, but they might lose other benefits, which they might value more than than a higher rate of pay. Like flexibilities, you know, family-friendly flexibilities, time off in lieu, those types of arrangements. That's right, absolutely. And how's it going to be enforced? Like, you know, who makes the application to which court to determine whether or not actually my higher rate of pay is being handed on to to the outsource provider. It, it seems that, as you say, it's a fantastic slogan and it sounds really good, but there's there's not a lot of detail what it actually means, how it's going to be managed and, and what it can, what, what the flow and effects are where there are already existing employment relationships in place. Yeah, and it's such a good point you make about the bargaining context and, you know, that these types of terms um, have been sought by unions and bargaining representatives for... Eons. Eons, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. You know, there was... There was a time where there was a bit of a debate, I think, yep. probably you know, 20 years ago now, um, 15, 20 years ago, about whether those types of clauses were matters pertaining to the yeah. employment relationship yep. uh, under that formation of the uh, criteria for what could be included in an enterprise agreement in the pre-work choices era. Um, and obviously that you know, proposition has evolved through the Fair Work Act. It's a really strange paradigm, at least from my perspective, where the government in one hand is talking about trying to reinvigorate the bargaining system, potentially having you know, multi-employer agreements or industry bargaining so that you know a broader cross-section of parties can engage in the enterprise agreement-making process. And then we've got an issue like this that has squarely been the remit of enterprise agreements yeah. for, you know, as you say, eons. Yep. But for some reason, there's a perce- perceived need to fashion some kind of legislative fix for it as opposed to leaving it as something that can best be dealt with or considered as part of a bargaining process. As you say, a, a potentially a further restriction on the way that we actually were allowing our, our businesses to do business. You know, it's, it's further constricting the matters that businesses can actually manage for themselves. And if it's not just same job, same pay, but you know, it extends to things like conditions, not only do you have those issues about you know, things like flexibilities that might work in one enterprise that don't work in another, but you know, the Qantas example is a, is a classic case. A lot of those employees receive the benefits of discounted travel as a result of who they work for. Now, surely it couldn't be countenanced that you know, businesses providing services into, into Qantas should also get the benefit of that, that discount travel arrangement. I might go and get a job with a business providing a service into Qantas so I get the discounted travel. (laughs) So yeah there's that issue and then there's this rolling fixed term contract issue as well so a concern it seems that the nature of these kind of fixed term contract arrangements is some in some way undermining I guess wage growth or you know undermining employment security. Uh, Once again it wouldn't seem to be a big problem that needs a solution via a legislative fix. No. No, it, it, I don't think. I think you're right. I think employers are alive to the risks that that they're exposed to when they employ or they engage someone on a rolling fixed term contract. It's it's fairly clear what those risks are. So people might need encouragement, perhaps not to run their business that way. But it may not. It, that doesn't necessarily mean a legislative fix. I, I agree. And I think also at a time when we've got an incredibly tight labour market, you know, I think businesses aren't using fixed term arrangements or more. You know, non-permanent arrangements, unless they absolutely have That's to. Right. You're trying to find good people and keep train them, them up and keep them. <laughs> for as long as possible. <laughs> well, I think there's going to be a lot to kind of discuss as as those issues develop. But probably the last thing just to touch on, because I think it's been an issue that's been really part of the uh, political discourse now for a few years, is this idea in and around compliance penalties, the criminalisation of, of of wage theft. And look, for mine, I think to a certain degree. 
uh, the former government got a bit wedged politically on this issue. Uh, they started to wade into this discussion and debate about compliance and wage theft, and the idea of wage theft as a concept became part of you know, the vernacular, a perspective that you know, employers who were incorrectly paying their employees in some way were doing it deliberately or with some kind of malfeasance you know, in terms of trying to, you know, as I said, to deliberately undermine the terms and conditions of employees. Now, my experience has been that that's just not the case. I, I agree completely. I, I really don't like the term wage theft because I, in most cases, employers are not trying to steal employees' wages. There's a systems issue. People haven't understood the terms of the enterprise agreement or, you know, penalties and allowances as provided for by the industrial instrument can't be easily slotted into, you know, the payroll system. Like, it, that, it's not... Wage theft tends to suggest some, as you say, positive action on the part of the employer, and my experience is not that at all. Yeah, and I think to a certain degree there's a, there's a perspective perhaps that if you criminalise it, then it will improve compliance. Now, for The my, payroll person whose job is to interpret the enterprise agreement and put it into the system <laughs> will suddenly do a better job because it's criminalised. I don't, I, that link doesn't work for me. Oh, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And the other thing is, you know, this issue, from once again, from my perspective, and I'd be interested if, if uh, yours is the same, it's not the case that boards aren't already focused in on this issue. That's right. Sensible and pragmatic and responsible boards are focused uh-huh. in on making sure they get this issue right, not only if you're a public-facing brand because of brand and reputational damage, But it was only five or so years ago that the penalties for breaching workplace laws increased by 10 to 20 20 times as a result of the Fair Work Protecting Vulnerable Workers Act and the introduction of the notion of a serious contravention. Yes. So we're already operating in an environment where the legislation provides for significant penalties for individuals and corporations for single offences. The courts are willing to meter out significant penalties for um, corporations and individuals, both specific and general deterrence when these issues uh, are brought to bear. And we still obviously have a problem in some quadrants with compliance, but my perspective is that's not because of deliberate acts and a desire to break the law for which criminalisation of the offence will result in any substantial improvement in compliance. Um, my, my experience is certainly that companies with good boards or good senior leadership teams are completely aware of their obligations and are so aware of this as an issue that they're proactively in taking steps to ensure that they are complying with the terms and conditions of employment. Like that, that That's my experience. Now, certainly there would be people who aren't doing that, but in effect, the the increase to the penalties, the publication of, you know, prosecutions and things like that is having the desired effect. No, absolutely. And I think the other thing, and look, whilst obviously you and I have a strong view about this, and the other practical problem I see is that if you're going to have a criminal proceeding, it would seem that the criminal proceeding needs to go before any civil proceeding. So, And I think Stephen Amendola was interviewed for Lawyers Weekly and expressed some similar views a few weeks back that this idea that criminalising wage theft might actually further delay the ability for employees who have been underpaid to actually actually get their money. Yeah, that's right. So whilst there are, I think, lots of good policy reasons and practical reasons why this isn't required, it feels like the die is almost cast on this to a certain degree. It's been part of uh, the ALP policy position for a long time time, Mm. and it would seem that they are not prepared or not likely to dial back on it. So I think it then comes down to, well, what, what do boards and what do managing directors and, and senior leaders, HR people in businesses do facing into what is likely to be this reality? Yep. 
And for mine, it comes back to making sure that your house is in order now, yeah. um, getting your governance in place. And indeed, it's been a conversation that we've been having with our clients, I think, for a long, um, time. For a long time now. But it is never uh, too timely to remind yeah. uh, of the importance of good compliance practices, I think. And, and particularly in circumstances where this is clearly a topic that is, or, or a policy position that is heavily supported. And so there is likely to be legislative change. So now is the time to take the steps to ensure that you're not, you don't suffer as a consequence of, of that legislative change. Look, that's great. Well, Lucy, thank you so much for um, today's discussion. I think that we've covered a lot of ground uh, uh, in some substantial detail. As I said at the outset, uh, whilst this is the third in our four podcast series, there was still plenty to discuss. There is. And there'll be a further podcast that we'll have coming out in a week or so's time dealing with our fourth and final instalment. Krista Leonard and Michael Stutley uh, from our Perth and Sydney offices will be facilitating that conversation. So, look, thank you for joining us. As always, uh, we are here to respond to any inquiries you may have. But thanks for joining us on Word to the Wise, and we'll catch up with you next time. Thanks very much, Lucy. Thanks, Michael.